Well, here we are, one month after the, excuse me, two months after the last Kevin Brendeville show. I apologize, but um, sometimes, like many businesses, you have to cut things out um, that are more uh, luxury items in order to better help the clients that you have. And for me, I had to make sure not only that the clients that I do have uh, were doing all right and checking up on them, but um, that I was taking care of everything that, that I needed to um, during this forced uh, economic shutdown. And unfortunately, that left some holes in my content creation. So I do apologize for that. But I do also thank you very much for sticking with me through this. And I hope to reward that loyalty with a lot more content. You know, and maybe you could help by uh, reaching out to me on either Facebook or wherever you're seeing this where I'm coming up with, with new show ideas. And, and on Sundays, I wanted to do something. And it gets back to my historical roots. For those who, who don't know, that's where I was trained. That's what I went to college for, was history. And if it tells you anything about the discipline, you know, I'm in finance now. So, of course, um, again, that's, what, 120 grand of money that I didn't have that went to fund a career that was not even the same field. Regardless, um, I want to use some of that knowledge to bring it to the people and talk about um, different people who can inspire us, individuals who created structures and things that lived on beyond themselves. And I want to focus on the business and finance aspect of that, primarily um, people like J.C. Morgan, J.C. I'm thinking J.C. Penny, who just closed today, J.P. Morgan. Um, people like Andrew Carnegie and founders of, of BP Oil. And so I was thinking of calling it something like um, American Empire and Euro Titans. And we would focus on one person uh, who built a business empire either in Europe or the United States and how they came to dominate their time period. And we would do this by focusing on the history and, and who who they were, what shaped them, how do they impact the world, and, and some of them, how do they impact us today? Especially with someone like a J.P. Morgan. Now, I don't mean to single him out, obviously, but he would be the first on the list. So if that is something that interests you, let me know uh, wherever you are watching this and or listening. Find a way to, to reach out to me. Let me know your thoughts and if you'd be interested in that. And if you are, uh, let's go ahead and move forward with it. Now, that being said, we've got a lot to talk about today. We've got um, we've got J.C. Penny closing, as mentioned before. We've got uh, Tesla potentially being removed from the uh, S&P 500. We've got, and this is over them reopening. It's it's crazy. Um, we've got the largest uh, grocery workers union railing against Kroger because they've decided to end the hero pay now with the lockdowns ending. Uh, we've got uh, the revision of the coronavirus loans on the table. We've got Elon Musk. People were uh, claiming that he had asked for government subsidy for SpaceX, and now California's denying that he ever put a, a, a claim through for a subsidy, meaning that he funded it himself. And 
Now we're also looking at other things with the lockdowns. And we're going to be talking about the impact on not only the economy, but I want to talk to you also about the efficacy of it. And and, and for those of us who didn't go through civics courses, uh, how is this even allowed to happen in the United States? So it's all that and more right here on The Kevin Prendeville Show. Well, welcome back. I hope you're enjoying this gray Tennessee weather. After our couple days of summer, we've got a nice little respite here where we're going into the night 60s. It's going to be great, muggy, humid weather. Might as well be in Florida, except we have none of the beaches. Although, hey, don't sleep on the on the Tennessee River. So they are quite nice. Just watch out for the moccasins. Anyways, we're going to be starting off today talking about the coronavirus pandemic and its impact on Social Security. Now, Social Security is something that I mentioned in a bunch of podcasts before. I talked about it, if you remember, with Brock Fortner. I have talked about it in numerous articles. This thing was already going to be broke um, pretty much 100 years after it was started. So right now we're looking at about 2030, and I don't actually think it's going to be broke as it stands. Um, can you imagine the political fallout if a politician said, yeah, we're just going to have to let this thing be insolvent? How many people's retirement strategies planned on Social Security being there? Now, that has changed. and There have been studies that more and more millennials and young people don't believe that it's actually going to be there for them. That's not a bad philosophy to have. But for a lot of people who are 40 and older, um, and some people who are living on it now, you can't, as a politician, go out and say, yeah, we're going to let this thing blow up, even though that's probably the prudent thing to do, because a lot of the social programs instigated with uh, and instituted with uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 30s actually prolonged the Great Depression. Again, that's another topic for another day. But what we've got here is this uh, article coming at us from uh, Fox Business here. And it says, at the end of April, the government projected that Social Security, which is one of the biggest federal benefit programs, costs us almost double what the military defense spending does, think about that, would be unable to pay the full benefits starting in 2035. At that point, only 76% of benefits could or would be paid out. But that was before officials counted for the virus outbreak, which pushes that date back to 2030. Well, this is because Social Security, when it's collected, is collected as a tax. It's not put in some lockbox somewhere. It's not invested in a bank CD or um, some other conservative uh, investment. It is collected as a tax and spent like that. So the government has to, when it uh, accounts for the budget, and they put the over trillion dollars that we're spending on Social Security into the budget, if the government has to take out a loan on that, which it most likely does, that's um, just added to the national debt. So it's not as though, you know, it's put into some annuity where it's nice and safe. Um, and you know what? Those chickens are coming home to roost. So what are you going to have to do? Well, the only thing the government can do is raise taxes. I mean, think about it. We are the only source of the government's income. And 
as a result, when these programs that it has in place go broke, go belly up, they're going to raise taxes. And as, as bad as that sounds now, think about the people who are in positions that are tax deferred. What I mean by this is take, for instance, your 401k. Every dollar in your 401k is still subject to income tax. So you didn't save any money. You actually just deferred not only the income tax today, but also the income tax calculation in the future. So that means when you go to take money out, that's when the government calculates how much you owe them. So if you deferred your taxes to before the Social Security fix, and then you take them out after the government has to raise taxes to fix the Social Security problem, chances are you're lost. Because you're going to be making more money, you're going to have less deductions because you've paid everything off because you're older, and now, because you've deferred it, the, the government gets to collect more from you. And of course, this puts a strain on the investments themselves because you're going to have to go more aggressive with your strategies, even if it's outside your normal purview. And uh, and then what? You're outpacing inflation, but are you outpace, outpacing the taxes? Does the rate of return in your, in your 401k cover the taxes that hit you at the end when Uncle Sam wants his money. So they're either going to, they're probably going to tax you more. They're probably going to tax your employer more. Or especially, especially if you own your own business and are a solopreneur, they're going, because they already hit you on both sides with Social Security tax. So they're going to clobber you again um, because they can't pay their debts. They cannot pay these government programs. And again, politically, they're stuck. Uh, we've got a book series here that I'm writing that, that'll be coming out um, by the end of this year where uh, they're going to have to hit you on, on both sides um, because they're, politically you cannot advocate cutting out Social Security. And unfortunately, that has a very real financial impact and not necessarily a positive one, especially if you take some of the Democratic positions where they are and I and and maybe it's coming from a good place, but they want to put illegals and people who don't pay taxes on the docket for Social Security. What does that mean? Well, that means you get to pay more. What what happens when you're tax deferred? Well, you pay more in the future, not necessarily now. And there are strategies to make sure that you don't pay those taxes uh, at a later date. And usually, that's a tax first strategy because the way the income tax is written is that you only pay the tax once on the dollar, which is as it's earned. So if you pay the tax now when, the, when it's lower, where you have this little bit of a respite, and then wait and you don't defer it, um, then you could potentially save a lot of money on the front end. And this, these are some of the strategies that you know I work with uh, with my client, and we've only scratched the, uh, scratched the surface. But I did want to bring this to you because this is going to be swept under the rug. I don't think any major media um, partners of Congress are going to talk about this. Uh, I think it's going to be slipped into some sort of bill. And of course, we've added $10 trillion worth of debt in the past couple months. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's we are in a terrible economic position and it's going to gonna hurt your finances. So it is very important to bring that up. 
Now, I wanted to start off with this because that's probably as bleak as we're going to get. Um, some of the other things, like for instance, you take this uh, coronavirus revision for the uh, small business aid program, and, and that sounds great, and it is. They're allowing businesses to actually spend the money that they get um, a little bit more how they see fit. It's not just payroll protection, which is important and, and a nice addition um, to bailouts. Let's call them what they are. But we got to be smart here. We got to be. We got to understand that a lot of this could be avoided. And um, I'm not really sure how to politely say this, but it could have been avoided by, you know, not closing down the economy in the first place. Then you wouldn't have to add seven, ten, thirteen trillion dollars worth of bailouts and stimulus packages and stepping over our God-given liberties to do this. And as we move away from the Social Security conversation specifically and move more into the bailout space, I want you to understand that Government, one of the functions of government is not to bail out businesses. That being said, another function of government is not to forcibly shut down the economy, especially since they don't or shouldn't have that overarching right. But since we're in the spirit of trumping rights and uh, anything else, uh, sure, why not bail out everybody? So by uh, changing a lot of the requirements that go into how money is spent or what qualifies some businesses for these loans, um, that is going to be changing. For instance, this uh, article also from Fox Business tells us that they're going to, uh, quote, liberalize the rules by <clears throat> lowering the requirement to spending just 75% of the loan on payroll. Now, payroll is important, but that doesn't cover overhead expenses that doesn't cover things like uh, the utilities or e even at a reduced rate or the rent um, or if it's a restaurant for instance and you need more food shipped in because the old stuff went bad stuff like that wouldn't have been covered in the original program so they are changing that again wouldn't have been needed if they just didn't shut down the economy in the first place I mean here's a novel idea if you're scared of going out and getting it, or if you have an underlying condition, maybe you have diabetes or or elderly or have something that could make this virus a serious threat to you, why don't you stay inside or wear a mask in public or try to distance yourself from other people and the rest of us don't have to suffer the consequences. Now, of course... I don't want to sound callous or cold here, but that is the point of the society that we've constructed and spent 300 years constructing. That individual liberty comes before everything, and the purpose of the government is to maximize liberty within the social contract. Now, we could get into the philosophy of all that. We don't have enough time, and that's not the focus of today's show. But I want to make this very clear. The point of the government is not to keep you healthy. That is your prerogative. 
as a free-minded, free-thinking citizen. That is something that, as an adult, you have the ability to do for yourself. To take care of yourself and your family. So again, if you have something that's underlying and you know that getting this virus could be deadly, stay home. Please, uh, nobody wants to see you hurt. Maybe ask your employer, maybe if you could work from home. But don't cost 30 million people their jobs. Don't cause irreparable harm to the economy. Because I'll guarantee you, more people were hurt by that than people that were hurt by this virus. We're not going to track all of the suicides. We're not going to track all of the families that are going to be broken up through divorce. We're not going to track the people who become alcoholics. We're not going to track uh, the numbers of people who feel insecure about not having work and then end up beating their kids or their wife or both. We're not tracking that. But if we were, I guarantee you it will be astronomically higher than the people who were ever affected by the coronavirus. Listen to me, do you even know anybody who had this thing? I sure as hell don't. Now, I don't know everybody in the world, and I know you don't either. But I don't know a single person who knows anybody who had this thing. That's that's three degrees of people. That's, you know, we're talking triple digits here. And by extension, if you don't know anybody, then, then that just adds to my list. People who don't know anybody who actually got this. That's aside from them inflating the numbers as well, which, by the way, we know they were doing. It makes me think that there was something else here. Maybe there was a legitimate attempt to destroy the economy. Again, could be coincidence. Could be, you know, it could it could be that we just have a bunch of incompetent politicians for our leaders. And they are, rather than standing on principle, just subjects to the wills and whims of people around them, don't really have a good grasp on what it means to govern as an American, and so they don't really care about the Constitution, or you and your rights, and then just stomp right over that. Some of them might be new. For instance, Bill Lee here in Tennessee. I'm sure he makes great pancakes because he's been flipping and flopping this whole time. First he said the government has no right to shut down the businesses, but we'll make a recommendation, which I think is the best way to go. And he uh, then decided, you know what? No, we got too much pressure from that. We're just going to shut everything down. Now, Tennessee, luckily, you know, we haven't seen the real estate prices get hit um, all that much. We're still seeing people uh, move in here. We've got a better job base than uh, some of the, the, the blue states like New York and New England, and people are moving in from those areas to escape the taxation and, and, and keep their families fed and healthy and strong. But not every state has that luxury. And I think had Bill Lee been the governor 
um, of another state, he would have suffered greatly for that decision. And Nashville, too. Nashville's going to get croaked by this because Cooper, in reopening slowly, has hurt a lot of businesses because people, their businesses are just going out to the surrounding counties that are open. Just because Nashville's not open, you know, they haven't restricted travel, thankfully. They haven't told people to stay in their homes and, you know, walked up and down the streets with police force. Again, thankfully. But again, that just means people who would normally spend money in the city are going out of the city to spend money, maybe finding new businesses they like, and will be repeat customers out there, and it'll hurt the na local Nashville economy. All this to say that the change of the small business loan is, is welcome, but would have been totally unnecessary if you didn't mess up in the first place. And we wouldn't need the debt that has been a result of forcibly shutting down the U.S. economy. It's going to take years for the GDP to recover. But the level of incompetence across the nation is staggering to me. The fact that the politicians didn't even seem to care about the health of the economy and how important and how vital that is to a thriving nation. They just went ahead and shut it all down and it's going to cost them. But more importantly, it's going to cost you and it's going to cost me. Now, speaking of the economy... We're going to switch gears and talk about the JCPenney bankruptcy uh, to close out the show today. So I hope you'll stay with us. That'll give us some insight into hopefully a way that this 118-year-old business can come back. Stay with us. Well, we're going to end the show on a round of um, a couple different articles. One, we're going to start out with the LA Times, which went into JCPenney's bankruptcy a little bit deeper than some of the things I could find. But more importantly, we're going to also tie in the unions, Elon Musk, and uh, Tesla and that ongoing battle. And so if we're going to start out first with JCPenney, it, it is incredible. I mean, most businesses uh, will fail within the first two years. Not enough Customers is usually the problem. People don't know about it. People They don't start with a, a big enough marketing budget to get the word out or they start off shaky in the restaurant business. Maybe their food isn't up to par. They don't have a lot of the menu items. And uh, unfortunately, um, it usually leads to the majority of businesses closing uh, within the first two years. So to have a company continue on for 118 years after um, after the uh, its founding, that in itself is an incredible feat. And throughout those years, they've had to deal with a lot of changes, you know, from going from a corner store to going to a department store to um, dealing with, unfortunately, the internet or not dealing with the internet as it slowly consumed more and more of their sale base. And now with everything shutting down, uh, retail absolutely cratered, and, and JCPenney was hit pretty hard, and and they were leveraged to the point where they could not survive this eight, these eight weeks. 
So they've announced that, and this is according to the LA Times, that they will be closing 29% of their stores. This doesn't mean that JCPenney will no longer exist, but they're hoping that in closing these stores and for, for filing Chapter 11, that they'll be able to restructure a lot of their um, a lot of their company in order to get rid of some of the debt that they've acquired and hopefully come back smaller. You've seen this happen with uh, people thinking it's going to happen with Toys R Us, even though they went down during a, a, a bull economy, bull market, and they've filed for Chapter 11, hopefully to restructure and go into more of the online space. It's not going to be the same thing with Sears, where Sears is, is, is basically done for. Um, JCPenney hopefully will be able to um, restructure a lot of, of what they have and therefore go online and move a lot of their um, a lot of the, the capital they have left into online sales. How are they going to compete with Amazon? I'm not sure. How are they going to beat Amazon? Probably not. But, you know, Amazon's doing great and they only have 56% of the market share, which is a lot, which is huge. I mean, they were the first there. But they still have not, for the numbers that they're doing, it's incredible that they have just over half of the market share. Again, you know, monopoly levels are 65 to 70% of a market, even more than that to, you know, 85, 90%. So Amazon doesn't even technically have a, a, a monopoly and they're able to just dominate the way they have. Uh, JCPenney, um, I don't see them, you know, competing with Amazon uh, that way. But if they can gobble up some of the lower end, um, some of the some of the lower end online retail um, websites, there could be a space for them. It may not be as big as it once was, but you know, companies ebb and flow, and and. You know, this could just be at a point where they're where they're lowest, and maybe, you know, maybe they get a new CEO, or maybe they get people in there who understand the online space a little bit more than the current regime, and you could see a comeback. Unfortunately, though, with headlines like this, usually that doesn't bode well for the brand. You know, if they do pop up back online, people don't exactly associate positive things with them. You're going to start seeing this is going to be common. Uh, you know, Macy's has done okay, but they're going to be hit hard by this. Kohl's, a lot of the people who are losing business to Amazon, and I shouldn't single Amazon out, losing business to the internet, you know, this is this is really going to um, really put, really going to kill it. It may kill the malls off, which... I know some people don't love the mall and, you know, it's a hassle to go there, hence they buy online, but think about what that does for commercial real estate and commercial land and all the people who took out loans to buy the land. Then that comes back to the banking system and and, and the banks may have to be bailed out from that if it all comes crashing down at once. You see the same thing with oil. Now, oil's gone back up uh, for the first time in a month. It's back up over 30 bucks a barrel as people start to use it more, but all of the smaller oil companies that were highly leveraged 
and and potentially new, you know, coming out in the uh, the bull market. Um, now they've potentially dried up, um, no pun intended, during this forced shutdown, which comes back to the banks, and they're not getting bought out by the larger oil companies because the larger oil companies have clamped up as their capital has essentially been shut off by this crisis. And it doesn't help anybody. So you would really hate to see this happen uh, in in the commercial space, you you really hate to see this happen with commercial real estate. Again, do I think it's all gloom and doom and it's all over tomorrow? No, but over time you're gonna you're gonna really see the economy shift into something that is more along the lines of uh, of this new age. Everything is is manufactured by uh, by robots and everything is bought online, and drones fly things to your house. It's going to be interesting now that a lot of the physical labor has started to been be taken out of the economy, um, and and J C Penney, in my opinion, is the canary in the coal mine. Again, I'd hate to be some of the banks who have loaned them money um, over the past few years now. And speaking of businesses, uh, uh, unions unions have really become in my opinion, irrelevant. Uh, no company today could get away with what uh, unions cre- uh, were invented to uh, or created to stop. You know, we've got um, we've got a lot of a lot more investigative journalism. We've got mass media. We've got ways in which, if companies try to put some of the or evade some of the restrictions, uh, safety regulations and restrictions that have been put in place over the years, um, they would be caught immediately. So unions really do a lot to actually take money out of workers' pockets, um, and they don't always give back. I mean, you got teachers' unions that bankrupt governments by instituting uh, cost-of-living adjustments and things of that nature where the company may not be able to afford it um, or in, in the case of the teachers union where the government can't afford it and they need a bailout. That's another topic for another day. The grocery union or grocery workers union um, has attacked Kroger because Kroger has decided to stop the, uh, the hero pay. And this was a system in which essentially they would uh, they would essentially pay their workers more for coming in under hazardous conditions, and obviously with the risk, especially early on when we didn't know how serious this could be, with the risk that Kroger employees were potentially taking on, it makes sense that Kroger would um, would thank them. But now that things are opening back up and they are beginning to uh, see more competition and people are going out more and we understand that the risks really aren't as bad as we thought they were, uh, Kroger just has decided that, you know, we don't need to extend the hero pay. And so the unions are up in arms that 
even though Kroger profits are up because obviously they were the only game in town, restaurants were closed, all of that stuff. Um, they, the, the union is, is up in arms. Um, the chair person, uh, released a statement. And this is again from Fox business that, um, this decision talking about the descent, uh, the end to Kroger, uh, to hero pay, this decision is even more uh, inexplicable given the fact that sales are up and profits are up. The reality is that Kroger is choosing to ignore this pandemic. That's silly. This is not how we treat heroes in America. And, you know, this is part of the trouble with unions. How, how I mean, it, it was extra pay as a thank you. And now that they were on the downside of this pandemic, um, if you can even call it that, Kroger's decided to end it. Now, they're paying what the market or the government says they have to um, with the minimum wage in, in different areas. It's not as though they are going around those, those regulations. And if they could afford a pay raise across the board, naturally that they would give it. But the idea, that, and I'm sure Kroger didn't budget it for it to be a permanent raise. They only budgeted for a certain amount of time. And again, we don't know the internal workings. Yeah, I can always say profits are up, but we don't know about um, about their, their, their leverage and how much goes to servicing other, uh, either servicing debt or, or paying the increased rent because whoever their landlord is, if they have other commercial properties that aren't paying rent because everything's closed down, they're going to come back, especially to anchors like Kroger and, uh, and Publix and other grocery stores. They're going to come back and they're going to raise rent, which increased costs and increased cost means less, um, less revenue for uh, the working people. This is the same thing when you forcibly raise the minimum wage and it either gets people out of business and creates less jobs or you see um, more automation, you see workers' jobs get cut. All of these different negative aspects that come from raising pay. And it'd be great if Kroger could afford to pay uh, people a, a permanent wage increase, but if they can't, then I don't think they should be forced to by a union. And of course, the union wants to pay a raise because then they could go back to the workers and they could say, okay, we got you this raise. Now you're going to pay us a higher percentage. And there's all sorts of kickbacks. And we see with other unions where they pay politicians and that gets real icky where now you're, the politicians offer the wage a minimum wage increase. Then the um, unions come back. Sometimes you're forced into a union. Then the union takes their union dues out of your check goes back to the politician. You can see the cycle there. So again, I'm not accusing anyone of doing anything wrong here, but the union wants to act like they're going to get the, the workers a pay raise here. And it really comes back to just washing their own hands and not actually helping the workers that they are designed to assist. And that brings us to our last topic today. I want to talk about Tesla and their ongoing arguments with the state of California, or essentially uh, California stayed closed until like July or August, some crazy amount of time. And Elon Musk is saying, enough of this. We need to get back to work. This isn't as deadly as you said it was. 
enough with the control, enough with attempting to end people's lives. We need to get back to work. And so the, the there were numerous politicians in California that basically said, screw you, or worse, over, uh, over Twitter to Elon, and he basically said, I'm leaving, see ya. And now there are other states publicly campaigning for Tesla to, to move uh, to their state. We have Colorado's thrown their hat in the ring, basically saying, hey, we're still out west, have all the great values of California, if you could call it that, um, but we have low taxes, and uh, we'd be happy to have you in our cities and uh, our, our small towns. Um, you know, Tennessee is obviously going to probably be in the mix for that. Texas. Um, so again, you're going to see a growth in red states because blue states have decided that companies are bad and they're trying to kick them out. And, uh, you know, that's only going to cause the states to, uh, to have to have more people on their safety nets because they create the safety nets, then they kick companies out. So that means less people have work and the less people that are working, um, means more people on the safety nets, which increases taxes on the people who are working. And then that sends more people who are working or who have money out of the state, which creates less jobs, which then puts more people on the safety net. You see the cycle there. So California, again, if California was run by people who were even moderately democratic, if they basically, if they weren't run by communists, if they were run by Americans, they would probably be one of the top five economies in the world on their own. It'd be a great boon to the American economy to have California running uh, the way Texas is run, the way Louisiana and Florida and the Carolinas and Tennessee and um, the basically most of the South except Kentucky. Um, if they were run, uh, if California was run that way, it it would probably be one of the, it would be the strongest state in the union, and on top of that, um, be strong, have a strong enough economy where they basically could be their own country. But much like China, they're run by communists, and they're really uh, really hamstrung. You know, China. If China had our laws, if China was truly a a democratic republic and set up like the United States, they would be the number one country and would have been for years now. They have all the natural resources and people in the world that you would want. Um, they've got strong cities and everything. And the, the Communist Party has just held them back and, and held them in the dark ages. And, and it's unfortunate. And, and unfortunately, we see the same effect in California. Luckily, it's its own state, so companies are free to just move out of that state. And it looks like Elon Musk and Tesla will be the next to move. I'm Kevin Prendeville. This has been The Kevin Prendeville Show, and I hope you learned something today.